This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. American British novelist Raymond Chandler once said, The law isn't justice. It's a very imperfect mechanism. A new book highlights that idea as it looks at how our legal system has changed over the last 70 years for the worst, where quantity is confused with quality and might with legitimacy. The book is The Nonsense Factory, The Making and Breaking of the American Legal System. It was written by Bruce Gibney, a litigator turned venture capitalist. Gibney was an early investor in PayPal, among other tech companies. His previous book was a critical look at the baby boomer generation titled A Generation of Sociopaths. So why does he think the U.S. legal system has failed to serve the people? Pleasure to have Bruce Gibney joining us right now. Bruce, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Bruce. So where and why has the legal system failed us? So the reason I wrote the book is when I was a litigator, everything sort of made a narrow sort of sense. You know, I was out there to win a case and there were rules and I just trundled along. And then I became a client and I realized you could never get a straight answer to any question worth asking. And um, that's a different perspective. That's the perspective that, you know, 323 million Americans have, the other million are employers. And it's, uh, it's totally unacceptable. Uh, the, the law needs to be able to answer basic questions. Um, you know, where can I put my toilet during a remodel? Uh, is this person an independent contractor and an employee? Um, and, and so on. Uh, it doesn't. Everything is, it depends based on, you know, some obscure factual tests with 45 different prongs. And um, even even the it depends is sort of farcical because what it actually depends on is it depends on discretion exercised by the executive branch, including the bureaucracies that report to the, the executive. And the reason why that is is the law has just bloated out of control. There are uh, 50,000 rules for everything. Right. And because they can't all be applied even-handedly, uh, the only way um, they're applied at all is the the executive, the enforcer, gets to decide who's going to be punished for what. And it's a pick-and-choose system, and this leads to everything from, you know, sort of spotty and um, somewhat arbitrary-feeling regulation for businesses to, um, you know, the qualitatively different experience of um, uh, things like being, you know, driving while black, you know, these uh, these sort of arbitrary um, crimes and uh, police brutality and what have you. And, and it's, it's all a, a product of the law's sort of failure to understand itself and to, um, and to know what it's trying to achieve. So with your background in the tech sector then, how has this failure by the legal system impacted uh, various tech companies? So I think that the real impact is coming down the pike over the next five to ten years. Um, there was, a, you know, for a long time we really hoped uh, in Silicon Valley that we could just ignore Washington. And about ten years ago, we discovered that that wasn't true. Um, but you know, the law reaches everything. It, you know, it reserves the right to touch anything at once. And um, one of the, the most frustrating things is, you know, most businesses want to do the right thing. Uh, it can be very difficult to know what the law considers to be the right thing, and sometimes the law. Um, you know, pursue self-defeating policies, in part because various, the constituent parts of the law, you know, Congress, the bureaucracies, the, you know, the prosecutors, uh, and the judiciary don't really understand each other and how, how each other, you know, they work, and they don't understand the public and, and the industries they're supposed to regulate. So you see these sort of counterproductive, counterintuitive outcomes. 
Um, so there is a narrative now that, you know, we don't want companies to be too big and right. we don't like it that, you know, companies are staying private forever and doing whatever they want unaccountable, you know, to the public markets. And then, but, but of course it was the law, you know, when it changed itself uh, about a decade ago to, allow, you know, to, um, expand the de facto public company rule, um, which let companies stay private forever that encouraged, you know, private companies to stay that way. So, you know, you'll find that one part of the law does one thing and, and thinks it's fixing one problem and it ends up blowing up something else. And then the law tries to fix that problem and then it creates two more and uh, it just becomes a sort of hydra headed monster where really no one knows um, what what's supposed to be achieved or how to do it. Uh, I think the way that that's going to play out over the next couple of years is is in antitrust. It, it will be in privacy. Um uh, and in financial regulation, um, which is increasingly sort of, you know, moving into the, the tech sector as we move into sort of virtual banking and, and, um, and so forth. And I don't think the, the law is going to do a particularly good job. And I, I just based that on the past 80 years of it not having done a very good job um, at regulating. It doesn't understand all the industries it wants to, um, it wants to regulate. Uh, the policies, because the bureaucracies write the rules and they report to the executive, you know, sort of formally this isn't supposed to be the case, but in fact that's actually true. Um, it introduces an enormous amount of policy volatility between administrations. And, you know, as a business person, I'd say I'd rather have a rule that's slightly not great, right. but that is completely consistent than to oscillate every year between a rule that's you know, wonderful, and then one that's terrible, and then one that, you know, is TBD. That, that's deeply unhelpful for businesses. So, you know, I don't think that the climate is, is particularly good. You know, that's, um, you know, we all want to be pro-consumer. That's ultimately the goal for all companies is, is they're pro-consumer, even if they're consumers or other businesses. But the law gets in the way of that, even though the law itself is supposed to be pro-consumer. Um, we saw this recently with the Apple v. Um, Pepper decision which was the, uh, the antitrust case that came down on Monday from the Supreme Court. And, you know, the goal of antitrust law has never been entirely clear. This is about, you know, the size of the company. It's about the price the consumer pays. It's about, you know, some sort of amorphous power that people are exercising. Yeah. But really, yeah, ultimately, in the end, they were trying to benefit consumers. I'm not sure actually this decision will benefit consumers. I think it will take away a lot of the value that Apple brings to its consumers, which is ease and security. But are you confident, uh, and it may be hard to, to be kind of in this in this landscape that we have in Washington, D.C., and, and to a degree in, in, in states, uh, state government as well, uh, is there a reason to be confident that this this mindset uh, around some of these issues of, of the law and and clarity uh, and transparency can be corrected. So I, I think they can be corrected, right? Every 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 businessman is essentially an optimist, right? You you go out and you think that you can make a profit. Um, so I'm going to be optimistic and say that they can be corrected if the legal system reforms itself. I just don't think the legal system in its current um, you know incarnation is capable of doing everything that we'd like it to do. I don't think it can make rules all that sensibly. I don't think it can make stable rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think the various parts of the legal system understand each other. I think this is, this is probably one of the things that's most underappreciated about the legal system is that each part of the legal assembly line really has no idea what the other one is doing, nor do they understand what the end product is supposed to be. So right. you know, if you're on the Ford assembly line, I make the steering wheel and you make the door handle. And you and I never talk to each other, and neither of us knows that we're building a car. Right. Probably the car is not going to be very good. And the law, you know, all the way through the line is like this. They have no, you know, one part doesn't know what the other part is doing or what they're supposed to be achieving in the aggregate.
Well, part of, uh, of this ends up being the fact that uh, it feels like the process uh, of going through the court system right now is longer than it has ever been before. Yeah, the courts are very, very slow. Um, and uh, one of the responses businesses have had, and again, this is sort of the you know, uh, you know, counterintuitive responses. You know, people wanted their their day in court, and you know, the court was supposed to be really good, so people would litigate, and then litigation became so incredibly expensive that it did two things. One, it drove companies to pursue arbitration, not not just as a cynical ploy to get out of things, although there were some companies who did that, but right. just because the court system wasn't really working that well. And that was perceived as anti-consumer, which, in fact, it actually has ended up being. But that, you know, but the, you know, businesses thought they had no choice. And the second thing is, is, as courts become sort of, you know, bogged down, as regulations proliferate and become more complex, it actually favors uh, the largest companies because only they can afford the compliance teams and legal departments and two thousand dollars an hour that New York law firms charge. And that's not an exaggeration, by the way. I just got a bill with a two thousand dollar an hour line item on it. Right. Um, you know, and it actually favors size. So you, so you end up in this, you know, sort of weird cycle of self-defeat with the law. You know, every time it tries to improve itself, allegedly for the benefit of the public, it, it kind of accidentally shoots a couple of members of the public, uh, you know, in its, in its attempt at, you know, sort of good deeds. We're joined on the phone by Bruce Gibney, who is the author of the book, The Nonsense Factory, The Making and Breaking of the American Legal System. You're listening to Knowledge Award here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. How has the, the, the increased cost surrounding the legal system kind of impacted some of this dysfunction as well? Right. So, you know, everyone eventually, you know, at a business owner to go will require a lawyer. A lot of people individually require lawyers. I think this is clogging everything up and it's reducing, you know, consumer choice. I think it's making uh, products more expensive. All these things ultimately filter down, right? Because, of course, the largest law firm on earth is the United States government. Yeah. And uh, and we know how much they spend and, and what that costs the economy. And I'm not anti-government. I'm just saying that it's, you know, it, it, it also pays legal price. We all pay that legal price in the form of taxes. Taxes are essentially a legal services bill in a way. Right. And um, I, I don't think that the legal system, is, you know, in general has done a great job about thinking about price and how to address it on the supply side. There are exactly as many good law schools today as there were 35 years ago. And insofar as the primary input for legal services is human beings, right, who are performing services, that means legal prices are going to go up. So um, that's that's sort of uh, unhelpful uh, and it's uh, distorting and no one has done anything about it, uh, just in the same way that no one has done anything to sort of figure out a better way to um, to bill clients in the billable hour, which was you know introduced in the 1950s. We need to innovate again, but we haven't. Law is a cartel, which is odd, right, because you have a cartel, members of a cartel regulating um, the anti-cartel, you know, FTC, but that's one of law's weird little ironies. So, so law needs to take all this stuff seriously and, and think about how it, you know, how it wants to achieve what uh, the public um, good requires, and and it really hasn't. You also, speaking of, of law schools, uh, talk about the the fact that there are issues that law schools have that that maybe they are not not only not serving the students well enough, but in some cases not serving society well enough. Right. Um, you know, I think one of the you know most alarming stories of the past 30 years in, in the law is the defunding of, of public legal education, um, which uh, 
which has really affected prices, especially at the lower end of the scale for people who can't afford counselor, can't afford Wachtell Lipton. Um, the other thing is the law schools themselves haven't changed in about 100 years. Now, they produce some outstanding scholarship. As research institutions, the top 50 law schools are amazing. Right. I mean, like, really, truly high-quality product. As pedagogical sort of trade schools, like dental school or, you know, electrician school or what have you, they're, they're less good because they don't provide the sort of practical skills uh, in, in the default curriculum that clients like myself and others want. And this is not, you know, just sort of the complaint of businessmen. If you go out to, you know, drinks with partners at these large law firms, they'll say, well, listen, you know, the law schools didn't teach our associates how to do anything, and they don't understand client needs. And, you know, actually the honest reply to those partners is neither do you, um, because lawyers really don't understand their clients. That's a class that really needs to be taught in law school. Mm -hmm. What do clients want? You know, in a, in a let's say, million-dollar acquisition, a $300,000 legal bill, for a memo that Chase has done every conceivable issue in every possible jurisdiction is just as a business proposition, not good enough. You know, clients should be able to say, hey, listen, you know, we'll assume some risk here. Right. You know, this is what we're willing to spend and do, do the best. And legal legal ethics, which are run by the state bars, not not the law schools, need, need to permit lawyers to say, OK, well, if you're willing to take that risk, then we'll do our best job within these constraints and we'll go from there. But, you know, the whole system is sort of uh, clunky and outdated, and, and it doesn't permit for that. I and, mean, again, you know, the law is actually a cartel, and it behaves like one, and it has all the sort of inefficiencies and frustrations of a cartel. Right. It just excuses itself from antitrust law because it writes it. So how, how you all, one of the other chapters you have in the book talks about policing. So how do, does the the— the actual work of policing, how has that been impacted by some of these failures of the legal system? Right. So the police are in an unenviable position. Um, they have been asked to be social services. That's not their core mission. Their core mission is to prevent crime. Um, but, you know, they're required to do tasks that are sort of outside their remit and outside of their training. So that, that already is going to cause problems. You know, if you don't know how to handle a mentally ill person or you don't have the facilities to deal with them. Um, then the outcomes are necessarily going to be, you know, fairly bad. One of the other problems that um, that we've had is, you know, the law believes that every every problem can be solved with uh, a rule and preferably like 30 rules. So as these rules and criminal statutes and quasi-criminal regulations proliferate, and and we actually have so many federal crimes that no one can count them anymore. The Department of Justice tried in 1982; it couldn't do it. Right. it had, there, there were just too many. So. You know, the police have been asked to enforce, you know, everything. They can't possibly do that as a practical matter, which means that enforcement tends to feel very discretionary, sometimes arbitrary. It opens the window for bias. So police have been put in a very difficult system by a legislature that, you know, responds, you know, to election season demands. That, hey, listen, you know, we need to, you know, get tough on crime, pass a law on whatever the issue du jour is. Right. Um, and then, you know, we're all stuck with the results and then police can, you know, apply that to us because we as citizens, we, we, we generally aren't excuse, you know, ignorance of the law is not an excuse in almost every instance. Um, and, and that's, that's challenging. You know, again, one of the hypocrisies of the law is ignorance of the law is an excuse on the part of executives who, um, misapply the law or abuse their power, you know, through doctrines of immunity, they're essentially excused because those doctrines explicitly say, hey, listen, you know, the law is too complicated for a normal person to understand. So if you get it wrong, that's okay. Um, 
but only if you work for the government. Otherwise, you got to get everything right. And that's that's not a recipe for social harmony or success. And you connect speaking of policing and and the linkage to uh, to politics and bureaucracy. You have a chapter on bureaucracy. And and obviously we know that 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 politics plays a role within the legal system and in many cases probably too much of a role it really does and one of the things that i think is underappreciated is the degree to which the white house controls the regulatory state um and i'm not you know sort of like some you know ultra ultra you know anarcho libertarian who wants to do away with bureaucracies entirely i think they serve a valuable purpose i don't think that all, all their functions should report to the executive right but um through an obscure entity known as oira uh, the White House exercises the right of review, which basically means they can you know, modify, suborn, or kill any regulation that's economically significant, which is any anything that you know involves more than $100 million of economic activity. And given inflation, that's basically every rule. Right. So they, you know, the, all these rules funnel up to the White House. They're reviewed by this 45-person office, which, you know, there's no way 45 people can look over the entire regulatory scheme. So... You, what you end up with is is political decisions being made about highly technical things. You know, someone, you know, a 45-person office has 90 days to review, you know, nuclear regulatory matters, you know, along with, you know, commercial fishing guides and oil leases and what have you. It's not going to do a great job, but it will make political decisions based on political gut instinct. And that's bad for business, and it's also bad for democracy. Speaking of the White House, you spend time talking about the power uh, that the executive branch holds and in many cases uh, is bringing up concerns that may not necessarily be of interest of, of the entire population or have an impact of the population of the United States, but still it ends up becoming, I would imagine at times, very much a, a bit of politics being played. Yeah, it's very political, and there's actually, and this is, you know, the alarming thing, there's very little that the other branches can do. So, you know, newspapers will cover, you know, the Supreme Court when it slaps down an administration, and that's very good and useful and, and very helpful by the Supreme Court. And, um, you know, Congress will essentially, you know, occasionally uh, override a veto, although not so much as it used to do. Um, but there's really not a lot they can do. And, you know, this is a sort of a business-oriented quantitative crowd, so let me just give you the numbers, you know. The executive branch writ large employs 4 million people, um, including the post office and the military, but the majority of it is just sort of rank and bureaucrats. 4 million people. It spends $4 trillion out of the budget. The legislature and judiciary combined have 75,000 employees, and uh, collectively their, their allowance is $12.5 billion. So it's basically you know the Leviathan versus the Lilliputian. There's just not a lot of sort of executive misconduct that the other branches can catch mm -hmm. because they have not kept pace with the growth of the executive itself. And they've actually given some of their powers to the executive. So now, you know, we're at the mercy of sort of an executive branch that's a behemoth, but that's ruled by one person. And this, again, this introduces volatility, introduces unfairness, and it deviates from our basic constitutional scheme. And this is the real problem with law writ large. Law makes a whole bunch of promises, and we all are taught you know, these promises in, in civic classes in, in high school. You're taught them in law school, and they turn out to be, in practice, not true. And that right. upsets people, and quite rightly, they think that you know, maybe law is illegitimate. Maybe it's arbitrary. Maybe it's actually just not fair. And if that's the mentality that people have when they interact with the law, and we do see a growing sense of this, then people will at some point stop obeying the law. And certainly as a businessman, I don't want to see that happen because – 
The law is a great – it should be and has been a great way to organize society for everyone's mutual profit. But if, if we're all reduced to sort of you know, disdaining the law, then, we're, then we fall back in this Hobbesian state of nature where everyone just says, you know, what can I get away with and why should I even try to, to follow the rules? That, that's not a society. That's anarchy. And anarchy, by the way, is not very profitable. Right. Bruce Gibney is our guest. He is the author of the book, The Nonsense Factory, The Making and Breaking of the American Legal System. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get to your phone, you can send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio, B-I-Z Radio 132, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. You you have a chapter in the book that uh, talks about evidence, and, and I find it interesting that there can be instances where our court system does not really have a handle on what evidence is and and how it plays in as a factor in in certain situations and cases. Right. So, you know, when you go to court, you think, you hope um, that everything will be decided based on the law and the facts, and the facts are the evidence. But in fact, uh, the courts don't have a great way to cope with evidence. And and this is especially important in, in two ways. You know, one, um, lawyers aren't as a sort of body of people, you know, famous for being numerate, right? At, but everything in law now involves numbers, contracts, antitrust, scientific evidence, and so on down the line. And, you know, courts, courts make math mistakes all the time. Private lawyers make math mistakes all the time. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that's, that's very problematic because, you know, in the end, it's usually a dollar figure, right, that you need to calculate, you know, in civil cases, and you want to get that number right. And, and of course, aren't great at the math, and lawyers aren't either. That outcome, which is to say the just outcome, won't actually be just. And and the second problem is is uh, technical evidence, forensic evidence. You know, there there is no great way to filter out junk science. Most of what we see on TV, um, you know, is not actually rigorous science. It was all ginned up by law enforcement, so it wasn't created independently. Yeah. And it's been shown by scientists to be unreliable. And the third problem is there's just a lot of evidence. You know, anyone who's been subject to a document request as a business or, you know, received a subpoena or what have you, you can have millions and millions of pages, literally millions of pages of stuff to sort through. That's very expensive. And the law needs to find a way to cut off that fishing expedition because it, it, it allows smaller plaintiffs asymmetric power um, sometimes uh, against larger plaintiffs because they can really impose enormous costs just by lobbying in a five-page document request. Well, everything related to your billing practices. For AT&T, that's like a 30 billion page document request. That's actually quite expensive. Right. Um, and, um, and, and, and courts need to find a way to impose true proportionality on this. You know, a 30 billion page document request for a suit that's worth $50,000 at most, just even allowing that uh, is unjust, right? And determines the outcome of the case. So yeah. evidence isn't this sort of sideshow. It's actually core to the economics of litigation. But I don't think that the law appreciates that. Well, and then you also have, I think, something that a lot of our listeners have either seen themselves personally or through a friend or they've heard a story about is the fact that in many instances where the law is concerned, you get people that are the ones that are responsible for making the laws, yet when they have some sort of indiscretion, they are not held accountable to the law. And it's also a little bit of the of the big guy against the little guy as well. There's a, there's an unevenness in the law in many cases. Yeah, so I'll give you a frivolous example and a serious example. The frivolous example is 
No one is excited when they see the jury duty summons in their mailbox, right? right? Exactly, yes. Okay. Uh, Congress has decided, you know, in its infinite wisdom, that that is an inconvenience from which our nation's elected representatives should be exempt. So yeah. they just say, listen, you know, you, you deal with it. <laughs> and, you know, they're, they're reasonable arguments. You know, they're very important people, blah, 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 blah. But the chief justice, when he got uh, a... Uh, a jury summons. He showed up for jury duty. Now he wasn't selected. And I can tell you, as a, as a litigator, I wouldn't have picked him either. Right. You don't want a Supreme Court justice on there. Right. But you know, the legislators just exempt themselves, and they exempt themselves from a lot of things. Yeah. Um, the most disturbing thing is is something called sovereign immunity, um, and it's offshoot qualified immunity. And these doctrines collectively say the government can't be sued unless it consents to be sued. Now that <laughs> yeah. is not an accountable self. Self-governing republic. Right. The government can do whatever it wants to you and basically get away with it unless it says, yeah, we, you know, we're feeling indulgent today. By all means, sue us. That's not OK. And qualified immunity is, is a, a somewhat narrower indulgence granted to people like police, which says, listen, if you couldn't understand the law, if reasonable minds could disagree, if the law is unclear, then if you engage in an act of misconduct, we're, we're going to give you the benefit of that and let you go. The problem with that excuse is, I can say this as a lawyer. Nothing in the law is clear. All reasonable minds disagree. In fact, our adversarial legal system is premised on the idea that we'll disagree about everything. So, you know, in the words of Seth Sotomayor, this essentially licenses cops to shoot first and ask questions later. And that's not great either. So if you're able to, and this may be a hard question to ask, I mean, with all of these issues that, that seemingly are out there with the legal system, are, are there one or two areas that you see that, that end up being impacted the most because of this? And it, and it may very well be the average Joe and, you know, how they are impacted by some of these. I, I think it is actually the average Joe. Um, and, I, you know, especially sort of probably the, the poorest 25 percent. Um, when when the law comes knocking, you know, I can sit there and I can pick up the phone to a giant New York law firm for the average person. The average person, you know, if you look at, at the Fed numbers, the average person can afford uh, about 18 hours of legal representation. Um, and, uh, the, you know, so the median, the median household can afford functionally zero. Right. So, there, you know, as an economic matter, there is no, there's no economic right to counsel. That, that's a real problem. Any single legal event can bankrupt people. And, and, and it's a yeah. serious problem as medical overbilling and, you know, health care costs and what have you. And it hasn't been addressed. You know, medical costs should be addressed first because, you know, the consequence of not getting health care is you might die. But, you know, the second thing in the list should be the law because the second worst consequence is that the law might imprison you. Still reserves the right to execute you. So it should be higher on our priority list than it is now. The law needs to be a lot clearer. It is the operating system for humanity. And if we, if we just treat it as this, you know, sort of like perpetual inconvenience that could never be better, it really won't be and society will decay. Bruce, Bruce, great to have you with us today. Thank you for your time. It's it's a great book, and it's a great discussion. Thank you, sir, for coming on today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Bruce Gibney. The book is The Nonsense Factory, The Making and Breaking of the American Legal System. The book is uh, available in bookstores and online for your purchase uh, right now. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 